Okay, today we're joined by Alexander Schleek, the former director of elections for OSCE ODIR, otherwise known as the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the Office of Democratic Institutions and Human Rights. Alexander is also now the special representative on elections, or as he calls it, the election commissioner-in-waiting for the office of Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya, who is one of the leaders of the democracy movement within Belarus. Oh, we're speaking outside the Global Summit on Democracy in Europe. The full and free exercise of our sacred right and duty to vote is more important in the long run than the personal hopes or ambitions of any candidate for any office in the land. You're listening to High Turnout, Wide Margins, an insider's look at election administration hosted by Brianna Lennon and Eric Fay. We're really thrilled to be able to talk to Alexander today. He's observed hundreds of elections at OSCE ODIR and um, just has a wealth of experience from everywhere, from observing elections in the United States to countries in Africa. And brings all of that experience and expertise to Belarus. So um, one of the things that we really wanted to talk about today is how his experience has been in um, Belarus and or his inability to actually be in Belarus right now. And so we wanted to give you some background about what exactly is going on there and in the Belarusian democracy before we jump into this episode. So it's important to have a little background on elections in Belarus and the state of democracy in Belarus. The current president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, has been president since 1994, the longest serving uh, head of state in Europe. And that's when it went downhill. He changed the constitution again, abolished all the powers from the parliament. Now he can rule by decree. He's like a, he's like a king. Yeah? Whatever he signs becomes law. Yeah, it goes to the parliament, but I don't even remember a single name of a member of parliament. We don't care who they are. They've never, not a single one of them ever voted against anything. It's always unanimous approval of whatever the president wants. As you might imagine, a situation like that, the elections in Belarus have been very problematic. Uh, the OSCE ODIR has observed most of the national elections in Belarus since independence. They have observed significant problems with, with the elections in Belarus, opposition candidates being imprisoned, uh, ballot box stuffing, and a number of other significant irregularities in the elections. So, you know, a Alexander was, was leading a division of OSCE ODIR as a Belarusian, and it's significant that now, you know, after his term there was up at OSCE, He's launched headlong into the, de the democracy movement in, in Belarus, which is really facing an uphill battle. After the most recent presidential election, many Belarusians felt like uh, the opposition candidate, uh, who Alexander works for now, actually won the election. And there were significant protests. Many people were imprisoned. Uh, the protests were, were put down harshly by by the military and the security services. And it's a very tenuous situation, to say the least. Alexander's living in exile, essentially. And Belarus, as many Americans know, has, has been more or less aiding Russia in its invasion of Ukraine. 
And it's also important to know that, as sounds probably evident, that Belarus essentially operates as a police state where, you know, you heard stories from the Soviet Union of the KGB and pervasive surveillance of the citizenry and everything. That really never stopped in Belarus. And as a matter of fact, Belarus still has a KGB. They still call it the KGB. They never really changed any of that. And so it's 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 been really an uphill battle. So a number of observers uh, categorize Alexander Lukashenko as the last dictator of Europe. And so it will be it will be interesting to see what progress is made there and you know what the future holds for Alexander and all of his compatriots in their struggle for democracy within the country of Belarus. It's actually quite a, you know, a sad story in a way because for 27 years, for 28 years, he has been earning himself the title of the bloodiest dictator in Europe and now he got associated with Putin so much that, you know, his dictatorial career is in ruins. He's now a footnote to Putin, yeah? It's quite a sad story for the dictator, yeah? You, you defraud the elections, you kill your opponents and uh, he actually killed his political opponents and, and then you're meaningless compared to Putin, yeah? It's kind of, a, in the world of dictatorships, he was aiming for a solid paragraph in the book and now he's just a footnote. I'm uh, Alexander Schlick and I come from Belarus. The way I got into the elections and the whole trajectory was uh, through first helping the international observers as a translator. I was 20 years old and I got hired to accompany the two international observers. I think one was from Poland, one was Swedish for three days as they were observing the elections in Belarus in 2004. And that was fascinating. Not that I, not that I had any illusions about what elections were like already back then, but then seeing that with my own eyes was really something out of this world. You know, we were looking at, I clearly remember, I was 20 years old, yeah, I didn't I didn't buy what they were giving to us on the state television already then. But then, as we were in, a, in the vote counting, we saw how the ballots got placed once first in, the one, in one pile, then moved to another pile, and the extra ballots were just burned outside. You know, it was just crazy. And that got me totally hooked on the elections. Two years later, I got into, I started working with the mission as the logistics assistant, so for a longer time. And there it went. Then I went into the international observation, ended up working at the OCODR, that's the regional body for 57 countries. And uh, first was a desk officer for nine, 10 countries. And then I was, for the last five, six years, I was the head of elections. So I was overseeing all election observation and electoral assistance uh, across 57 countries, including the United States of America, where I've uh, in person uh, observed in 2016 and then in 2020. Do you, ha do you have a favorite election observation mission? I can tell you more about my own country from Belarus, and uh, that's actually a unique system. We, we have the same president uh, for 27, 28 years now. He has never really won an election in a fair way except for the first one. When he came to power in 94, that was through a good election, a normal election. And since then, he's just faked every single election that he was going through. Last time in 2020, in August, he clearly lost, and then uh, tens of hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets, 
to protest and to demand that the winner of the election, the lady whose name is uh, Svetlana Tsikhanovska, is duly installed in office. And uh, the revolution is still going on. And now I'm in the team with Svetlana. I've left my work with the, with the OCE. And I've joined uh, her team as her special representative on elections. So in a, in a way, I'm like a shadow election commissioner or an election commissioner in waiting. Yeah. And the idea is that uh, the new election that would uh, reestablish democracy back at home. This is our top priority and this is what we're preparing for. And for the time being, it's just, you know, as it was. In Belarus, for example, it's a unique... Uh, it's a unique situation where the vote counting happens in the polling stations, yeah? We use paper ballots, no technology, nothing like this. And then the commission members gather around the table. Of course, they place the observers, whoever has been accredited somehow magically, yeah? They're placed about 10, 15 meters away. That's what, 40 feet, yeah? Away from the table. They're, the commissioners surround the table in a way that you can't see anything. They count the votes in total silence. Each one counts their own pile of ballots. They put the results uh, of their own little count onto the piece of paper, pass that piece of paper in total silence to the chairperson of the commission, and then the chairperson of the commission collects these this little pieces of paper, goes somewhere else, makes a couple of phone calls, and comes back with the totals. In this way, even the commission members don't know the totals in their own polling station. So good luck finding out how the people actually voted. It's, I'm smiling now, but this is actually quite horrendous, no? But it's just a fantastic know-how of uh, how fraud can take these totally ridiculous dimensions. So that's, that's one anecdote from my own country, and that's something that we really hope to change one day. So to piggyback on that, uh, I actually had a very similar experience when I observed an election in Belarus. The vote count happened exactly as you just described it. If, it, if, if it's occurring in that fashion all across the country... Is there some coordinated effort from somebody in the government to teach them to do this? Or they've heard by word of mouth to do it like that? Or how, how is it all happening like that? First of all, the commission members are typically drawn from the um, government servants, yeah, government employees. School teachers, very typically, doctors in the hospitals or outpatient clinics. Um, and it's very common that the chairperson of the election commission, somebody in the leadership role at the very local level, would be the headmaster of the same school, yeah? So these people come to work for the election for the election on Sunday, yeah? And then next day on Monday, they report back to work to the same boss. So, you know, good luck really deviating from, so to say, party line, yeah? It's, um, that's how it functions. And then I think it's also about uh, the fact that nobody's really interested in knowing what are the actual outcomes and the results in a given polling station. It's more of a, that the results get fixed up top, yeah? The Central Election Commission, together with the administration of the president, decide, you know, what's that going to be this time? 82% or 83% or maybe 76 And if they really want to look nice, maybe 72 But it never happens, yeah? And that's also the feature of the autocratic regimes is that every single next election, you have to, you have to put a figure higher because you can't be losing support if you're such a beloved president, yeah? Every single time you need to go a couple of percentages higher, but then there's also a limit, yeah? You, can, you can't really go above 100. And uh, I, I think they would want to, but it just doesn't work. And then there is also this whole feature of um, 
it's very regretful. Yeah, we do know that a lot of people in the commissions were really, especially in 2020, they really wanted to report honest results. And a couple of hundred commissions, we actually got the honest results. And that's what allowed us to extrapolate the uh, outcomes from these polling stations onto their neighborhoods nationally. And that is how we know that Ms. Tikhanovskaya got the, um, won in the first round. She won more than 60% of the vote. And what got reported for her was like nine or something. I don't remember. See, it's, it doesn't even matter what they report. But then... Uh, they are also in a kind of a competition between polling stations, yeah? If you have two neighboring schools, you're looking up at your bosses and you're like, oh man, this one's gonna put 82% in his polling station, I better put 83. And that's how they get faked uh, the, the protocols and the results. Of course, they get corrected up top, yeah? The commission would report 85% and then the regional commission would say, no, 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 no. Let's be serious. We're in a downtown capital. People clearly don't like the government here. Let's put 60. And the village gets reported, I don't know, 99. I mean, it, this is probably a very obvious question, but why do voters even participate then? It's, an, it's, a, it's a great question, actually. I think uh, a lot of people participate because of the inertia. A lot of people participate because they're forced to participate. We have um, students, for example, or people who are dependent in their salaries on the government. They're forced to come, especially, you know, we have... That's also an interesting thing, yeah? But 2020 was different. 2020, for us, in the August election, there was such a mobilization, especially by Svetlana and her team. It was actually three women teaming up. And they had, they've agreed, they've uh, built a coalition, just three women who were appearing at every single rally, all of them together. The male candidates were not there. And uh, that really inspired the people. Because for the first time, people clearly saw that we have a person who we really want to vote for. And that was weird, because she's not a politician. Her husband was supposed to be running for election. He got thrown in jail and she stepped in and, instead of him. It's just a, an amazing story of how the person came to politics, despite all odds, won the election and continues the fight for the people. And her husband is still in jail. He's been, been sentenced to 18 years in prison. So if we don't win, he's gonna be there for 18 years. We better win. Hey, it's Eric Fay, and you're listening to High Turnout, Wide Margins, a podcast that explores local election administration, European edition. So, Alexander, you've observed elections in more countries than most human beings. You've, you've seen how systems work in all different countries. I think most Americans, most American election administrators are not familiar with OSCE. Oh, dear. OSCE has observed all these elections in Belarus. Um, but yet there is this outcome that you've just described. So can you talk a little bit about what is OSCE ODIR, what it does, what, what it accomplishes, and maybe what some of the shortcomings are? ODIR has been observing elections in Russia and Belarus, and we all know how, you know, these elections are not improving. But that's not exactly the point of international observation to improve elections on behalf of the countries. The observers have to stay out of uh, the process. I remember one, 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 another anecdote, yeah, we were in a, in a vote count and uh, as they took the ballots out of the box and, and turned the box over, one of the ballots just flew under the, under the sofa in the corner of the room. And I've seen that. And they were counting and they were missing one ballot. 
But as an observer, you can't tell them because that would be interference in the process. Eventually, yes, after a couple of hours, I was like, have you maybe considered looking under furniture here? And they're like, and they're like, where have you been? But you know, not interfering actually helped us understand that in that vote counting, they were doing the best job they could. And they were honest about missing a ballot and they put it in the protocol in the minutes of the commission. And that's what matters. That's what allows the international observers to build a comprehensive picture of how elections were. And then propose the recommendations and then maybe come back and help the governments implement these recommendations. But really, everything is in the hands of the national authorities. It's up to them if they want to have good elections or not. So election observers are not the election police. Not at all. Quite the opposite. Right. And I think that's a common misconception, at least among Americans. Like, these observers are there, so they... I get that question all the time. So do you enforce the election laws? And no, it's not that way. So to conclude, you're you're working kind of in the uh, opposition, I guess you would call it. Government in waiting. Government in waiting. There you go. I like the the shadow election director. The commissioner in waiting. Shadow election commissioner in waiting. What do you see as next? What what do you do right now? You're you're not living in Belarus. I can't go back. Yeah, I'm facing eight nine years in jail the moment I cross the border. So so what are you doing right now? What are you doing to get back? What we're doing now on my field of elections, first of all, once again, you know, having new good elections is our top priority. This is we got into this mess because the elections were defrauded. And the only way out is to rerun to run a good election. So my uh, task that was given to me by Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya is to prepare the grounds for the for us to be able to run good elections if the opportunity presents itself, say, tomorrow. And if the opportunity presents itself tomorrow, we we are ready. We have an election law, which is not a good law. It's not a good law, but it's not a totally disastrous law. So even with the current election law, we can run a pretty decent election if we supplement the legislation with sublegal acts, with the regulations of the election commission. I'll give you an example, yeah? Get registered to run for president, you need to collect 100,000 signatures in Belarus. These signatures get collected, then they are verified whether they're authentic or not, yeah? The law says you get the signatures to the commission, and then you take a sample of no less than 20% and verify those, and if you find bad signatures, then you take another sample, and if you find more bad signatures, you invalidate all of them. Which is the attitude of looking for bad signatures amongst the ones you received, yeah? In my logic, what we should be doing is looking for good signatures. The point is to find enough signatures to get a person registered, rather than what the current commission is doing, finding enough signatures to not have somebody registered. So in the sublegal regulation that I've drafted and my team, we basically said, the law says the sample of no less than 20%, let's do a sample of 100% and keep looking until we find 100,000 signatures. So that's the change in logic, yeah? Within the same legal framework, it's just a change from being prohibitive in how you run elections to being allowing for competition and promoting the honest process. And this is significant in Belarus's case, right? I mean, because you know much better than I do, before the last election, people were told their signatures were invalid and then didn't they line up for hours in some cases to go to, I guess, the election commission and 
have their signature validated. It was unprecedented what was happening in 2020. People had, you know, I think it has had a lot to do with COVID as well. Uh, Lukashenko, the president, has been a COVID denier from the very beginning. He has been, COVID has been raging worldwide, yeah? The world was on lockdown, and this guy would be like, ah, go to the sauna, ride the tractor, and have a shot of vodka, and you'll be fine. I mean, crazy, no? And the, he's, he's been denying the obvious. And people finally, I think, felt that it's this whole situation with the that government is not just about your fundamental rights, not even about your salary, it's about your livelihoods. He, they clearly saw that the government cares nothing about the people. So when the alternative candidates were presenting themselves, people were like, yeah, yeah, I'll give my signature. And the uh, very well-known banker presented himself as a candidate. Now he's sentenced to 14 years in jail. Another guy who was running the IT um, it's like a consortium of IT firms. Uh, he presented himself. He's now in immigration. The husband of Svetlana Tikhonovska, Sergei, presented himself. Now he's in 18 years in jail. And uh, then Svetlana step up, stepped up and collected the signatures. And people were literally queuing for six, seven hours to give their signature. And that was a, a legal way for people to demonstrate their political opinion. Yeah, What is the government going to do? Like, okay, if Lukashenko knew where it was going to end up, he'd probably beat the people up already then. But he couldn't have predicted that, you know, it's also a very interesting gender issue, yeah? The reason he didn't expect things to go this way is because he was discounting the ability of a woman or even three women to do anything significant in politics. He is in his macho mindset of just women need to stay at home and mind their own business. Yeah, what, what is she doing? Who's going to vote for her anyways? And then, ta she gets 60% of the vote in the first round. And, you know, he gets barely 10. <laughs> so people were really excited. And then uh, people took to the streets and it's still continuing. Now, of course, we don't see much of this action in Belarus. Yeah, there are no more protests. But it's suicidal to go and protest. You'd be picked up immediately, beaten up, tortured, raped in prisons. We have 1,250 political prisoners right now in prisons, sentenced or waiting to be sentenced. There are people who have been picked up two years ago and they're still in pretrial detention. They haven't even have a court hearing. They're just lounging behind bars, you know? And de facto, about 4,500 people are under criminal prosecution right now because of their political views. So it's dangerous to be protesting. But um, the last thing that was the street action was on uh, three days after the war, after the invasion of, uh, by Russians in Ukraine started, people took to the streets in Belarus and people protested against the war because uh, it was just, you know, it could, it's dangerous, it's suicidal, but it mattered. People wanted to show that, you know, Belarusian the Lukashenko regime is an accomplice of Putin in this. The territory of our country has been used to launch missiles into Ukraine, yeah? Our army didn't go in because, you know, they're also not suicidal. They know they'll be killed the, the moment they get into Ukraine because Ukrainians know how to fight. The people wanted to make it very clear to themselves, to the world, to the Ukrainians, that Lukashenko is one thing. He doesn't even represent us. We, we, we can't get... We, can't wait to get rid of the guy. But we are with the Ukrainians. We really, really are against the war, but we clearly made the, cho chose the side as the people.
And it has to do, one, one thing has to do with another, yeah? The path from defrauding the election to becoming a security threat in the whole region is extremely short. In less than two years, the guy faked the election and then allowed missiles to be launched to Russia, or to, to Ukrainian territory, yeah? The two things are connected. It's the autocracies in the war against the democracy. It's as simple as that. And that's, it's not by pure chance that, you know, there are no good elections in Russia or Belarus, and in Ukraine, they're pretty decent. That's why they find themselves on different sides in the war. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks to you. Yeah. You're a great yeah. storyteller. That's good. Thanks, yeah. thanks. And good luck to you guys. I mean, fantastic that you're here. And best of the greetings. And uh, once again, fascinating how, how dedicated the election officials are. It's, uh, it really, you know, the democracy rests on the shoulders of these people in the county level and in the polling boards. Can I ask a silly question, maybe? Sorry, uh, managing editor Rebecca Smith here. But I'm wondering, you know, we talk a lot about, like, loving democracy. Um, but you're putting your livelihood, your life, yourself at risk. And I'm wondering, you know, why is it worth it? Okay, let's be honest. I'm not risking my life. I haven't even been imprisoned, unlike many others. Svetlana has 15 criminal cases against her. She's declared terrorist and this and that. And, you know, she's, but she's the leader of the, of the whole thing. But you're under no illusion. I mean, the KGB knows where of you are. Of course they do. Of course do. they do. Yeah. yeah. We've detected three KGB officers in Poland and Warsaw, where I live, and deposited them to the Polish security services. So, you know, we're on the lookout. We're, we're careful. We, yeah. But why? So regular people don't have to deal with that no they don't have to deal with that but in the end of the day look I'm in a perfect situation compared to these 1250 people who are sitting in jail and being beaten up regularly yeah and in the end of the day it's 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 a small investment still for potentially a very bright future for the country it's you know okay fine I'm not in the safest environment but then Life was never going to be too easy, huh? <laughs> it's, worth the, it's worth the fight. If we win, we'll have a fantastic country. And we'll be proudly welcoming you there, showing off how we can run awesome elections. For the time being, it's actually quite shameful, the situation in which my country is. It's a rich history, thousands of years of history, constitution written in 1488 in Belarusian language. Imagine. And now we're, we don't even know how to run elections. I mean, I'm sorry. A nation that is so well-educated, middle of Europe, we deserve better. And that's what we're fighting for. You've been listening to High Turnout, Wide Margins, a podcast that explores local election administration. I'm your host, Brianna Lennon, alongside Eric Bay. Thanks to KBIA for making this podcast possible. Our managing editor is Rebecca Smith. Our managing producer is Aaron Hay. And our associate producers are Abigail Ruman and Katie Quinn. This has been High Turnout, Wide Margins. Thanks for listening.